Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hi, I'm Steve Randall and welcome to Constructive Voices as we continue to build the conversation on biodiversity. The construction industry, which is arguably one of the most resource intensive and environmentally damaging industries in the world, I think as a sector we have a potential to play a leading role in enhancing and protecting the environment and oh my goodness, what an opportunity. That's Jane Finlay, she's a landscape architect and she'll be joining us shortly. Also, of course, Pete the Builder, Peter Finn, is with me next. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So once again, here we are, Pete. How's things? All good, Steve. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. And I've been really digging into different articles that I've seen as they've cropped up about biodiversity. It's something which I'd sort of paid a little bit of attention to in the past, but after our recent event and podcast episodes about it, it's something which I, I see everywhere now. It's a big talking point, and we're continuing to build that conversation on today's episode. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Biodiversity is, is certainly a subject that is a hot topic. It's certainly something that is becoming more mainstream. Uh, again, I think we've got one of the best uh, qualified um, people to to discuss it in, in Jane Finley and a really good interview coming up. Yeah, definitely. And this is something which, as we were saying, is is becoming a bigger issue issue. I mean, climate change is one big issue, but within kind of the whole environmental piece is the whole thing about biodiversity and how we look after the nature that's in our environment and that nature looks after us, ideally. But of course, building is a big part of that, particularly in urban centres. I mean, maybe give us a snapshot, Pete, of how you as a builder are affected, not by the laws necessarily that are going to be coming in, certainly in the UK and other things, but just how you're aware of nature and how you have to work with it when you're dealing with a new development a lot of those decisions are made before let's say like i get to see the plans when i'm actually getting to actually physically construct you know a development or or a housing site so it's clear to see though that people are are definitely beginning to to consider nature as part of all developments and like we had it before like it's not as if the subject is is only brand new We, we certainly had green spaces um, being put into um, areas that that were being, you know, urbanised or, or or were being developed, and I, I suppose it's about getting that balance right because having just like a green space with grass on it that has a sign on it that says "Do not play football" on it, like let's be honest, that's that's <laughs> that's not ideal for a, a lifestyle. Um, you know, I think again, biodiversity it has has a huge amount of parts to play, but. I think one of the biggest one is it's just simply connecting human beings with with nature and giving us uh, a sense of of calm, giving us a sense of um, freshness and and breaking away from from our cosmopolitan lives that unfortunately we we all have to live. In my opinion, we have been doing some right things, but I think you know some cities and and some general developments have got it very right, and then some have got it very wrong and are are, are doing simply a, a box ticking um, exercise. And again, we we all know that um, once you once you even consider something to be a box ticking exercise, it usually means that it's it's not actually <laughs> ticking the box that it needs to tick. So look, you know, 
I think no better no better person to, to listen to and to touch on these points than, than Jane. Absolutely, Pete. Well, let's hear from Jane Finley. She's been speaking to Jackie DeBerker. I'm a landscape architect. I'm a director of a landscape practice called Fire, which is based here in Birmingham, in Birmingham's Jewellery Quarter. And we've been around for 40, 40 odd years now. And I'm also the immediate past president of the Landscape Institute, which is um, our professional home, if you like. And I've been doing that for the last um, two or three years. And I'm coming to the end of my time on the board. What actually led you to study landscape architecture originally? Well, it, it wasn't something that was uh, top of my list to do when I was in sixth form and I was thinking of doing all kinds of stuff like architecture was something I was thinking about. Um, I was thinking of doing physiotherapy, can you believe it? Uh, I even thought about planning, but I knew that I wanted to do something creative um, and a bit technical, a bit scientific, because that kind of was the balance of my my own subjects is half half were arts and the other half were sciences and it was a way of trying to to blend those together and it wasn't until um I had this fantasy about being a forester I think it was and I went to see a guy in the forestry commission who basically was a bit patronizing and told me I was too small to be a forester because you have to learn to use a chainsaw and um, I wasn't of the right stature. You wouldn't get away with saying that. I was no. just going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he he said, um, you know, there are lots of careers in forestry and mentioned landscape architecture because there was a famous landscape architect. Her name was Dame Sylvia Crow. And she was a landscape advisor to the commission and she designed forests, how forests sat sympathetically in the uplands and some of the most sensitive landscapes in the UK. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is huge. I would really love to do something like this. And I've always been keen on the outdoors. I've always been a, I've been a great walker. I was in the Girl Guides and I used to go off hiking and camping and uh, I'd walk on Dartmoor and walk in the Peak District and that sort of thing. So I had a real affinity with the outdoors. And it just ticked all the boxes for me. It was designing in the out, outside places for people uh, and using nature. And even then we were talking about biodiversity and, um, believe it or not, climate change was a subject back in the 70s and 80s. So it just ticked a lot of boxes for me. And I looked into it. Um, obviously in some detail I thought well, there's nothing else I want to do I think this 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 will do it for me and I have been in in landscape architecture right from the beginning so I went to Leeds Polytechnic as it was then to do a, an undergrad degree and then postgrad in landscape and um, that's how it all started Fantastic. And you mentioned your affinity with nature, Jane, and, you know, walking a lot and that type of thing. Were there any particular places or even people that could be linked to your decision that you made to study it? Well, the, the in, I had a, a really interesting conversation with um, um, a woman who used to, um, she used to be a, a guide and ranger leader. And through all my sort of formative teen years, she was she was the woman who would take us all out camping and 
that sort of thing. And she was a great walker and we used to go walking in North Wales. I spent a lot of time in Snowdonia. Um, and she, I had a conversation with her about it and she said, oh my goodness, that is such a fantastic sounding career. I'd love to have done that if I had my time again. And I sort of reflected on that. And then this other guy who was a friend of my stepfather's who was, he was in banking and my dad was trying to persuade me to become a merchant banker because <laughs> uh, he thought it'd be fun. He was a real businessman. And the, this guy said to me, no, 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 you don't want to be a banker. He said, landscape architecture sounds so much more fun when I was telling him about it. So I think um, it, the, the influence of, of other people actually just kind of steered me in the right direction they probably knew better what I wanted to do than I did. And I think it resonated with them. And as so often happens in our profession, people come to it partway through their careers because they discover it just by chance. And an awful lot of our members in the Landscape Institute have uh, come through the postgrad route. They've done degrees in all sorts of other things, not necessarily the usual geography and biology, but some really unusual routes and they go on to being very good landscape architects and, you know, contributing to a fantastic profession. And would you say they have an, in common, Jane, even from the diverse routes that you've mentioned, many of them come through to arrive to the same career as yourself. Would you say they have an affinity for nature in common? Yes, I think so. There's that concern for the environment, concern for sort of biodiversity and what we're doing to our planet and also designing for people and the sort of inequalities in society are obviously really acute at the moment and, and there's a quite a focus on that. And a lot of people are very concerned uh, about that kind of equality and creating environments that actually break down some of those barriers so people from all backgrounds can access nature and benefit from the, the qualities of, of being outdoors. So I think we all have an affinity for nature. We all have an affinity, we all have a sort of an artistic bent as well. We're all quite um, creative and I think we're, we're all big problem solvers. So you blend all those things together and you, you get a, a landscape architect that is really quite it's quite a broad brush profession. We could be designing or looking at the impact of something like a wind farm that could be on land or even out, out at sea, one of the coastal wind farms, right down to designing a garden, a very specific garden for a very specific use, like for dementia. And it's everything in between. So we can be designing big infrastructure one day and sort of doing a detailed planting plan the next day. So you need people from all different types of background to be able to contribute to you know, the business of landscape architecture and the other landscape professions like planning and uh, landscape management. So um, that diversity of of talent and expertise is, is really important for the profession. Fantastic. Now you're mentioning, Jane, of designing a, a, a garden space for, for people with dementia. That leads us really nicely into you elaborating a little bit on your, your specialisms, please. Right. Okay. Yes. So um, when I left university, I, um, I got a job with um, a big architectural practice here in Birmingham. 
um, that, well, they had an office in Birmingham based right across the UK in all the different cities. And they were really well known for civic buildings. It was Percy Thomas Partnership. Long since gone because they've been um, absorbed by Capita. Um, but they were famous in their day for producing universities and they were especially well known for their healthcare work. And that really appealed to me, the whole design around healthcare, how you manage hospital sites, the whole patient journey, um, how people are treated as, as individuals and human beings as they go into hospital and, and the effect that the hospital environment has, not just on the patients, but staff and visitors too. So I really got into that in a big way. And as I got more into it, it became very obvious how the impacts of your design, whether it's architecture or landscape architecture, has an enormous effect on the well-being of the people using that building and particularly on the recovery and well-being of, of patients. And I like to do something with a good evidence base and healthcare architecture and design uh, uses evidence-based design as its mainstay. So if you do this intervention, that is the outcome. It's, it's a good way of explaining to clients um, why you're doing something. There's a good story behind it. They know what benefits they're going to get from that design decision, that intervention. A lot of Americans were doing experiments and studies on patients in hospital in different environments, whether they had views out of windows or not, or if they had views into a car park or a brick wall, or whether it was into uh, a natural landscape. And then they were measuring the recovery rate of those patients, uh, the amount of analgesia uh, they used. Um, and they found that people with the same type of medical issue were getting better a day earlier than those who didn't have that view. They were leaving hospital earlier. They were having less analgesia, um, less pain relief. Uh, they felt happier in themselves. The staff felt better uh, when they were working in those sort of spaces. And in fact, the interaction between the, the staff, the patients and the visitors was so much better. Uh, the communication between them all was a lot better. So everybody felt more fulfilled uh, better supported. They were getting physically better as well as mentally better um, by having just a view of, of, um, of nature. And having measured all of that, I think that is a good foundation for all types of design. And if you apply it to public health as well as sort of healthcare design, um, I think it goes a long way. And of course, the Victorians knew about this because they were building parks back in the 1840s and 50s um, to improve public health, to get people out and walking and away from polluted uh, inner cities. And they were building lunatic asylums where they had a lot of outdoor space to allow the patients to, to use. And they found that they were less aggressive. It's a very interesting area to, to study, but I think it should be the basis of um, all design for, for, for people, um, the way we design our towns and cities. So that's where I come from. And, uh, and it's what, how I've, I've applied that to, to all the work I've done, whether it's been a, a university, a 
place where people live or work, uh, where they are being taught. I think it's a good basis. And I think it's more important now uh, than it's ever been. Very definitely, very definitely. So did you yourself grow up surrounded by nature out of curiosity? Well, I lived in a typical suburb. Actually, I came from the Wirral uh, near Birkenhead. And of course, Birkenhead has the very first public park ever built in, in the world. And I didn't realize how important it was <laughs> at the time, but it was a fun place to go to. But I was quite close to nature and I lived I lived in the suburbs. Uh, I would go off with my friends uh on uh, at a weekend mum would say uh come back for lunch at 12 o'clock and be back for tea at five o'clock and we'd just go off and block up dam up streams um build dens in the wood uh get muddy fall out of a few trees and that sort of thing and it was brilliant and I just loved it and I don't think children these days have that opportunity to really engage with their natural environment in the same way that I did. Uh, and I think that's very sad. It must be about 15 years ago, we were doing um, a lot of work in my practice, building schools for the future. There was a big education program and we were building some great schools with fantastic outdoor spaces outdoor learning, uh, forest schools where kids went out in all weathers and could engage with the with their natural habitat and, and learn uh, alongside it. And there were quite a few studies out at the time showing how better engaged those children were that had access to outside spaces during, during school time, learning outdoors. Their, their attention span was better. Their behavior was better. There was less bullying um, the results in those schools improved. The Ofsted results improved. And sadly, all of that disappeared uh, with austerity. And we were just designing schools with absolutely minimal amount of landscape because that was the only, you know, the budgets were so small compared to the BSF schools that we're ba barely putting in um, tarmac paths and, and grass and it was very sad to see. And there's now a whole generation of schools which I think have missed out on you know those outdoor teaching areas and that engagement with nature. It's absolutely foundational, I believe, at least. What what mm. would you say, Jane, from you know, your huge expertise and of course all the studies that are, you know, relation to your topic, if you were to summarize the psychological and the physical benefits the quality landscape design plays, what would they be? Well, I think the way that COVID, I think, has um, it had a huge impact on people at the time and it shrank our worlds in, in, in a, a way very few of us um, have experienced in our lifetimes. And yet, in many ways, we'd never been more connected. And I think uh, there was a realisation at that point just how devoid of nature, how devoid of green cities are and how then precious those green spaces were at that moment in time. People were trying to find a place to get away from the four walls and to sort of bathe out in the sunshine and feel the feel the nature around them, I think was a really powerful reminder of just how crucial environmental health is to human health. And there's this, I don't know, it's this attitude that we are 
we are outside the ecosystem, that we operate as a species disconnected from nature. And somehow nature is something that you experience by watching Sir David Attenborough on, on television explaining something that's happening on the plains of Africa is so remote from our own lives that I think people just don't make that connection anymore. And I think that COVID actually, it's 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 an opportunity. It's a, it was an opportunity for people to realise how important their local green spaces are to them. But not just any old green space, because there are green deserts of mown grass around 1960s and 70s housing estates where nobody went out and sat on the grass there. Nobody goes out there. But it's the quality of those spaces which are so important that you can hear the birds, you can see the wildflowers, you can see the seasonal uh, changes. I think people are now beginning to realise just how important our survival is um, and how dependent our survival is uh, on nature. And anything we do to damage nature actually damages our own, um, our own health. I had a, um, a really interesting conversation with an architect I know who's got a fantastic apartment in the middle of Birmingham, but he didn't have a balcony. He, he had opening windows and uh, he said if you walk downstairs out of his front door, he walked out onto a street that was all concrete and tarmac and he could walk for miles in Birmingham and, and lots of other people were doing the same, but there was very little uh, green space in the middle mm -hmm. of Birmingham where you could you know, experience nature and really feel uh, so you could have a, a few quiet moments. And we continued to build these multi-storey developments right bang in the city centre with no space uh, around them for green. And it just saddens me that um, uh, in, in the so striving to create homes for people, we're not thinking about how the spaces around them, the places that we're creating for those people. And uh, I just wonder whether we're building the, the problems and the slums of the future uh, without giving proper thought about how, how we can drag that green network into our city, into our city centres, which uh, certainly in Birmingham, we are devoid of a lot of trees in the city centre. Great if you live around the, uh, the suburbs. I've got a fantastic park within five minutes walk from me. Your life expectancy improves if you live within 10, 15 minutes walk of a green space. It's as stark as that. I'm I'm just fascinated with all these these facts that you've obviously absorbed over the years. Like by how much? By how much, Jane? One year, two years? Oh, I, Do, I, are there stats? I, mean, I think it depends on sort of socioeconomics as well. Sure, um, of course. But uh, there are definite links between uh, the sort of inequalities of access to green space with inequalities in sort of healthcare and 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 health of of a of a local population. Hmm. Um, you know the, the the two are are definitely connected because if if you if it's not pleasant to go outside and walk or cycle or um uh, you use your car you don't walk uh you you don't exercise your health's mm. not going to be good so if we want to get people outside and walking we've got to create the places which are beautiful to walk in and people will walk further if they were if if there's a tree line street that's just a bit further away. They will walk further to walk down or cycle down a tree line street than they than if 
you know, taking the shortest route down a, a heavily trafficked street. These considerations are so important, uh, particularly when we're looking at retrofitting and redesigning our cities to cope with issues around transportation and climate change and so on. Okay, so we linked perfectly into the next couple of questions, which are, you know, all around really climate change and biodiversity. In a situation that we'll just imagine, Jane, you're addressing a room full of just ordinary jobbing builders. We're not looking at high level architects. How would you try to explain the link between biodiversity and landscape architecture? Well, if we want clean air and we want healthy, fresh food, we want to have a healthy lifestyle for our families. It's all dependent on natural systems. Nature will provide everything that we need and has done for millennia. If we want to continue to have a healthy lifestyle, we have to be more considerate about uh, our environment and how we build, how we plan, how we restore uh, nature. And we have to accept nature coming into our cities. You know, we're going to have to make some sacrifices uh, to allow nature into our cities, make some roads narrower to get tree planting in, for instance. But trees actually reduce the urban heat island effect. They um, shade buildings so you don't have to rely quite so heavily on mechanical uh, ventilation and air cooling. Uh, they um, filter out particulates from uh, you know air pollution, and you have birdsong as well, and you have seasonal variations. All the things that are so important to us. And I go back to what I say before that um, we're all part of one biosphere. We're we're part of the same ecosystem, so we can't divorce ourselves from nature. If we want to survive, we have to make sure that nature survives as well. And, you know, the message is pretty simple. Healthy places means healthy people, which means, you know, it's a healthy space for biodiversity too. And, you know, the whole issue around um, climate change, you can't um, divorce these issues. They're all uh, interrelated climate change, biodiversity loss, um, nature depletion, and our own health and well-being. They're all woven together. And we know we must do more with the natural environment to uh, to be able to remove carbon from the atmosphere, whether it's with soils, with plant material, and so on. But it's also really important that we plan, design, and retrofit our cities to you know, to effectively adapt to and mitigate the impacts of uh, of a warming climate. And, you know, it's easy to say to people uh, all these things, but you have to experience them for yourselves. And, of course, last year we all felt the terrible effects of the prolonged heat wave right across Europe. And for the first time, temperatures went above 40 degrees in the UK. And they the scientists thought that was going to be years away but it's happening faster uh, than they thought and these extreme events have become far more frequent um, so I think um, it's it's easy to get lost in the enormity of what's going on but we all have a role to play and if we all do our bit from the way we live our lives to the way we conduct ourselves in our businesses and those of us who 
um, work in the built environment. We do our bit looking through the lens of biodiversity, climate change and health and well-being. I think we can all make a difference. And whilst I think it takes governments to really set the agenda, I think we can all be doing our bit. And I just feel we have to hang on to that. Otherwise, um, there's a real feeling of hopelessness. And you talk to young people today and uh, so many of them have climate anxiety and it's it's just terrible um, for them. But it's a great time to be a landscape architect because we have some of the answers to those problems. We can design in uh, features and um, make sure that we mitigate and adapt and promote using natural uh, nature-based solutions to, to really tackle some of these big, big issues. Does that answer your question? It totally <laughs> does. <laughs> it totally jo- does, Jane. And you know what? The only word that didn't really come in to that answer is economy or economics or money. You know, economic considerations have to be taken into account. And how do you feel that can be linked in a way that is acceptable to the stakeholders, if you like? Yeah, uh, and it's a really good point because uh, in my profession, um, landscape has always been seen as a nice to have rather than a must have. And Mm -hmm. I think we're getting to the point now uh, where there is an understanding that green infrastructure and biodiversity are, in fact, they're strategic. Uh, It is strategic infrastructure in the same way that you deal with transportation and power and sanitation and those sort of things and it has to be considered in that way and I think I think some of the developers really get it and and they realize that you know uh, properties are more valuable if um if, if they have a nice outlook people are beginning to look at the location of, of where they're buying their homes it's not just a case of buying a box and sort of closing the door behind it they they want a nice place where their families can grow up so those sort of creating greener neighbourhoods are far more attractive for places for people to work and for businesses to set up. And cities that have great places, great outdoor spaces, uh, are very successful in attracting businesses and retaining uh, skills as well. Some cities are very poor at retaining their graduates, um, including Birmingham was always renowned for not being able to retain their graduates, whereas cities uh, with great spaces um, really have a thriving economy. So I think there are very good reasons, um, there are good economic reasons for investing in the green. And, you know, when it comes to parks, we know they're good for your health and physical and, and mental health. And for every pound that's spent on a park, it's worth £10 back in value through increased well-being and savings of £2 billion a year on the uh, NHS, um, uh, a a potential savings if there was a a greater investment in our parks and green spaces. So it makes good economic sense. And if if we don't invest in green infrastructure uh, that help to mitigate the effects of climate change, how else are we going to make our cities livable if the temperatures are going to be 40 degrees plus? 
Absolutely. So I think I think government realizes it. I think government realizes, uh, and and you know, Natural England have done a lot of work on the green infrastructure, their green infrastructure framework uh, on biodiversity net gain, and there's a lot of resources there for people to go to uh, to find out more. Um, and they're the ones that are sort of leading the um, that they're sort of championing nature as a as a sort of way a solution to to a lot of issues. Obviously, we're recording a little while before this episode is being broadcast, approximately two weeks or so before that. So we're recording on the twenty first of March, and the IPCC report has just come out. Uh, the Guardian newspaper stated scientists have delivered a final warning on the climate crisis as rising greenhouse gas emissions push the world to the brink of irrevocable damage that only swift and drastic action can avert. Now, the thing that I know that you noticed and I noticed is the Guardian was actually, apart from what the drama of that statement, the Guardian was actually one of the few mainstream UK newspapers to feature this today. What are your thoughts and feelings, A, Jane, on the low coverage and B, on the outcome of the report? Well, um, I think the coverage was more than disappointing. There are a lot of things going on at the moment. Um, There are a lot of big issues going on in the world uh, which um, capture our immediate attention. And sadly, some of the sort of political navel-gazing that goes on is a big distraction from the issues uh, that we uh, currently face um, fr- from climate change. And I I do think it's a really important report because it's not telling us really anything new, but it's pulling together an awful lot of threads and information that's been published in the past. And we, we need big political intervention. And it disappoints me that uh, there was very little in the budget, for instance, that... Um, uh, really promoted uh, green technologies and um, green energy uh, in in the way that we really need to do it. There's too much reliance on uh, the, the private sector delivering uh, for government. It needs to be more joined up. People are doing good things at grassroots level, but we need that joined up strategic impact that uh, government should be able to deliver. And I, I do despair sometimes about government, but I also despair that the commentators aren't really making it front and centre. So I, I do wonder whether it's such a big problem that people are almost too scared to really face up to it. There's a certain amount of heads in the sand type of thing that will we'll come up. Oh, there'll be some technological breakthrough that will make it all perfect at the end of the day or you know we'll we'll avoid um disaster but you know they were saying in the report that there comes a point where overheating uh then becomes self-perpetuating and you it'll just get hotter and hotter and you do wonder what's going to happen to food production in places that we rely on for our food whether it's imported from um north africa from the mediterranean and our own food security in this country is really, really poor. Um, the investment in agriculture is poor. How are how uh, polluted our rivers are? Uh, there seems to be we seem to be going backwards with um, led, um, just implementing the legislation that we've got uh, and the controls that we've already got. Um, things seem to be getting worse. So it's it's quite a dire picture that was painted by the IPCC report. 
Yes, I, I think so as well. I mean, the thing going to the UK, obviously, which is where you're based, the thing about it is you're mentioning laws and, you know, things not being implemented and things, if anything, kind of seeming to go backwards. We have obviously in November of 2023, the law to do with biodiversity net gain will come into full force at that time. Now, yourself, Jane, and lots of other built environment professionals across all sorts of sectors are going to have to, you know, endeavour to embrace this. What are your initial feelings and thoughts about it? I think it's a great thing for us to have. Once it becomes law and you've got to do it, I think it's a fantastic thing to do. And if it really does uh, improve nature recovery, I think that would be a fantastic thing. My worry at the moment is, do we have the skills to do it? Do we have enough people trained up to be able to do it properly? Um, It's the responsibility of local authorities to ensure that biodiversity net gain is implemented on every project. And at a time when their resources are really stretched, I think it's going to be difficult for them. My worry is it becomes a a box-ticking exercise. Okay, we've delivered X number of species, tick that box and we move on, and there'll be nobody uh, taking an interest in five or ten years' time to see if that biodiversity is really happening, whether those um, habitats that we've created are thriving and delivering the biodiversity that's been promised. Initially, I think it's a fantastic idea and I think it's a brilliant opportunity to pull together ecologists, landscape architects, um, hydrologists, all these um, people, arboriculturalists, all of us can help deliver on biodiversity. But I do wonder whether it's going to become a little bit like Briam, uh, where you tick the box and you get the points and uh, the rubber stamp on your scheme. Because we are beginning to see a little bit of that on schemes where they're implementing BNG. So I think that's something we've all got to be really aware of and make sure that that doesn't happen. Following on from that statement, which I, I entirely agree with, Jane, from what we're seeing so far, you know, with your own experience and your special connection and knowledge to the work you've done in the health sector, how important is biodiversity in these settings? In other words, imagine you're talking to, you know, the large audience that are diverse right now of constructive voices. How are you hoping to convince them that it's worth going further than just ticking those boxes? Well, I, th- I think I think having uh, nature at the heart of, uh, of, of every project that we do is it's a it's a little part of a much bigger network so you, you you're not developing islands of of biodiversity you're looking at how all these things link together and they start to link together and you're creating canopy connections between my project on this corner of the street and somebody else's project just down the street and that way we make a big difference and if we can deliver on improving people's health and well-being, uh, so people take less less time off work. They're more productive at work. Um, there's less strain on the NHS. Uh, we improve. Um, uh, we we see nature recovery and uh, um, an improvement uh, in species numbers and and uh, improve food production and the quality of water. And we are mitigating the effects of climate change and adapting to um, these extremes. 
I think if we pull all those things together and knit them together, I, I can't see what argument you can come up with that can actually dismiss all those wonderful, positive um, things that nature can deliver uh, to, to society. I mean, I hate the I hate the expression no brainer, but it is a no brainer. <laughs> It is. It is. One one thing, have you come across in the you know, the studies that you've been able to read and so on, have you come across anything that relates to the prison service, meaning um all the benefits to health? Do do they spill over into, you know, the behavioral side when when it relates to crime and so on? Yeah, that's really that's a really interesting point actually, Jackie, because uh on several levels if um, I know studies have been done about um, uh, crime. Um, uh, so if, if, if you have um, green open space that's well kept, so people feel safe about going down uh, and using the local park, there's less crime and there's less crime around the edge of the park. If, if you leave it to go to rack and ruin and people perceive it as being, uh, you know, a bit of a dump and there's... Um, um, antisocial behavior, uh, people don't go down there. So the antisocial behavior and crime increases. If you have tree-lined streets, apparently there was a study done in South Wales, which showed that uh, uh, there's less um, burglaries uh, to homes on tree-lined streets. don't know why, but that, that is a fact. And uh, the work that I've done, um, I've done quite a lot of um, uh, work in, in mental health and uh, some of the mental health work is actually quite extreme. It's almost, um, it's related to, to the prison service. You know, uh, um, some of them are sort of criminal, uh, have been considered to be criminals. And the way you design for that type of mental health actually improves uh, behavior. So staff uh, find that the, the um, um, uh, that, that the inmates are, are um, uh, better behaved, less violent, and it goes back to the uh, the old fashioned asylums. Uh, access to the outdoors just allows people to um, uh, you know burn off energy, do something positive. They might be you know working in the gardens or on a farm or something like that. But access to nature has a real positive effect on um, on the sort of criminal criminal psyche as well. So it's right across the board. It has a, a a positive effect. Yes, it's 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 really fascinating, and I'm glad that I remembered to mention to you because <laughs> last year we 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 did an addiction special, um, and Lucas Troutman, Doctor Lucas Troutman, who was a guest from the states, he is part of a of a, a healing center, if you like, there for people with various addictions. And one aspect of their therapy there is in fact working with horses in the outdoors. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's probably, you know, it's probably a podcast within itself. <laughs> I think going into all the different therapeutic benefits, I think, think that you and I will probably agree on that. Just imagine Jane, because you, you know, between your expertise and your ideas, you've obviously an awful lot to offer. Imagine that you know you were able to give input directly into governmental policies around you know BNG and so on. What would be your top five or so strategies if if you're put in that position? Well, I, I would ask government to uh, really consider green infrastructure as being an important, critical 
piece of infrastructure to take it seriously and, and, and to be leading with that. So when we're planning uh, new settlements and so on, in, so often you start with the road hierarchy and then the utilities, that we should be looking at how we weave in uh, nature-based solutions with green infrastructure, sustainable urban drainage, multifunctional landscapes. It's all about nature can deliver on so many different levels, and it's making sure that government sort of understand the the different layers of um, of benefits that can come out of that. That would be one thing. It would be to... Um, really invest in in the sort of stewardship of of our green spaces because so often we'll deliver a project and um i was in fact i was talking to somebody only today about the national forest here in the midlands an awful lot of effort is put into that initial planting it up uh, doing the uh, first few years of of maintenance to get the trees established, and then nobody does anything with it. The trees become overgrown; uh, that you get dieback because they're too close together. Uh, places be- then you know, places become um, no go areas. Uh, antisocial behaviour happens, and I think the, the the stewardship of our of our places whether they're in cities or or you know in our sub- suburbs in our parks that is really important and uh, we have a habit of not investing in that we also need the government uh, if we're going to deliver on bng and um, green infrastructure we need the government to invest in um, green skills. We need a highly skilled workforce. And at the moment, there are not enough people in this country with the skills to grow the trees, to plant the trees, to look after the trees, to design the master plans, to detail it up. Um, We're all struggling uh, in our sector, whether it's in the built environment sector, whether it's in the, the horticultural and contracting sectors. Um, we're really struggling to attract um, attract people in in and, uh, and and train them up with the right skills that we need. So it's actually going to be very difficult for the government to deliver on their promises. Uh, there isn't the manpower or the capability at the moment. Something I saw last night, a film called The Mustang, which was basically once again the use of horses in in a in this particular case in a prison setting. Um, inmates working with horses and that is bringing me to the idea of there must be not just people in prison who are like let's say low level offenders but there must be elements of society you know people who are maybe recently retired there must be elements of society who would be delighted to have an opportunity to have something to do you know in nature I'm sure surely that must be a solution Oh, yeah. Uh, And I think um, there are a lot of organisations like the Wildlife Trusts uh, who do brilliant work up and down the country. The National Trust, they all rely on volunteers and the volunteering sectors. And there's some fantastic sort of local projects where you have um, community farms and allotments and where people, um, you know, with... um, certain learning um, disabilities can really find their way. They can find a, um, 
a, a real love for, for for growing things and 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 getting involved, and then it, that leads to all the sort of social interaction that is so important. Get people outside and talking to each other, which is so supportive and uh, important for your for your mental health. So the volunteering sector is is enormous when it comes to um, doing doing good for nature. Really is. Yes, and and whilst I think that's brilliant, I still I think you're not going to disagree with me here. I still think there should be something that you know any government, not just in the UK, can implement uh, when there is a shortage of skills and and hands on deck at, at a time that you know is just not just a small crisis. This is like massive crisis, so it has to be addressed. Yeah, and I, this this is where the the sort of landscape institute comes into it. Where I mean, we we're promoting uh, the profession uh, as best as we can, and we're trying to advocate for for our profession from government level right down to sort of going into local schools and trying to persuade the pupils to um, to train as landscape architects or landscape managers or planners. And um, it's really important that we sort of do this ambassadorial role where. Um, we encourage um, local practices to to go and do their bit, and uh, and they're really good. And most people love doing it, going into the local school and sort of taking a lesson and showing the kids that actually they could do something professionally that um, could solve some of the big problems that we face. And I think it's empowering for those children, particularly if they are feeling anxious about the futures that they're facing um, the enormous problems that we face as um, a society, if they can feel as though they can do something about it, it just makes you feel so much better uh, to think you can contribute. So we need to do it at all levels. And this is where the the LI, um, the LI's work is so important, trying to bring on the next generation of landscape professionals. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's a, is completely integral to to moving forward. Obviously, going yeah. back to the law itself, Jane, what do you feel are going to be the biggest challenges? Some of which you've really covered already. Um, I think, in fact, you've probably covered most of the challenges. What about the opportunities and challenges that haven't been that haven't been covered in our conversation? Are there any left? Oh gosh! At the moment, one of the big issues we face in our profession is, as I said were a nice to have rather than a must have. And I think that balance is, is gradually changing. With biodiversity net gain, um, what we are beginning to see is the tendency of a client going to a an ecologist to deliver on biodiversity. But that only ticks just biodiversity. It doesn't look at how nature and people can interact. It doesn't look at uh, the rejuvenation, the regeneration of an area. And I think we have to be careful that um, uh, this it's everything to do with nature, how we design our towns and cities has to be uh, a completely collaborative affair to make sure that we get the best of every opportunity that arises. And at the moment, um, you'd have to employ an ecologist to do the job of 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 uh, literally um, doing the the survey and uh, the BNG. Now, there's nothing in legislation that says you have to employ a landscape architect or a landscape designer. Nothing. If you want to build a building, you have to employ an architect 
And if you want uh, your building to stand up, you have to have a chartered engineer, structural engineer to do that. And if you uh, are going to do anything with utilities, you have to have an M&E consultant. And if you're going to build a road, you need a uh, civil engineer. But there's nothing to say that you have to have a landscape architect. And I think that is a challenge we face as a profession. We need to move from being a nice to have to being a must have. And I wonder whether we need somewhere in in planning where uh, there is a requirement for landscape architects to be statutorily required to be on a, a development team. Yeah, I think that makes that makes an awful lot of sense. Particularly the way you presented it, it's like it just doesn't makes it doesn't make sense any longer for that not to be part of the law because there's a, like a holistic effort in in what you're doing. Whereas with with other aspects of people involved in built environment who are like wanting to tick the boxes, that's going to be missed out on altogether. Yeah, and you know it doesn't cost any more because if you're doing BNG. Uh, with a little bit of imagination and effort, it can be so much more than just delivering biodiversity. So it's making sure if you're going to spend some money, you know, get the most out of it, make it, make it multifunctional, um, make it, uh, if you're going to be spending money on any external space, make it as good as you can make it, you can afford to make it and good design doesn't have to cost more. Absolutely not. Now, to coin a phrase <laughs> that I found quite amusing that Claire Wansbury used, how do you feel we can get people past the bewildered and annoyed stage of at this lawn? And we're talking about the professionals who are like, oh God, now something else I have to take into consideration, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it reminds me of doing um, um, CDM and uh, all the other things that we have to do. That it's another thing that you add to the list of um, of requirements to deliver a project. But I think we've got to keep in mind uh, and be reminded constantly of the problems that we were facing. That we can't afford not to do these things now, and it's incumbent on all of us. Uh, every professional, not just landscape architects. Architects need to be conversant with it. Engineers need to be um, um, supportive of it. And we need to all work together um, because at the end of the day, um, our, our, I don't want to sound completely apocalyptic, but you know, our survival does depend on this. And if it's happening, if climate change and um, nature loss is happening faster than the scientists had originally predicted, well, we've got we can't leave it till tomorrow. We've got to do it today, and we've got to start now. As built environment professionals, we all have an important role to play in in nature recovery, and of course, being part of the construction industry, which is arguably one of the most resource-intensive and environmentally damaging industries in the world. I think as a sector, we have a, a potential to play a leading role in enhancing and protecting the, the environment. And oh my goodness, what an opportunity. It'd be a fantastic time to start your career as a landscape architect now, because I think you're taken more seriously than I was taken 38 years ago when I first started my profession, which was just putting a few Latin names on a plan around the edge of a, you know around the edge of a building to make the building look pretty for planning. So it's a great time to be entering our profession. And uh, when I go around to the universities, I do t- say to them, oh, "Gosh, I wish I was having my starting my time again." 
because they've they've got a lot to do, but uh, it there's some exciting work to do and very rewarding work to do. They're going to save the planet. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, themselves and all of our listeners. And as you said much earlier on, Jane, everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, can play a part, obviously. Oh, yes, absolutely. Whether it's putting bird boxes in your garden or on your balcony or growing a few extra plants here and there, or or even putting up some bird feeders uh, to to sort of designing uh, new settlements and town extensions and so on. We're all going to play our part. And um, I think it's just cherishing nature because once it's gone, it's gone. This is Constructive Voices. So, Pete, fascinating as always, as with pretty much all the guests that we have here on Constructive Voices, just great perspective there about biodiversity and framed, obviously, in the fact that the UK is introducing some tough new laws that developers need to know about because that's coming in later on this year. And as we were discussing before we started recording the podcast, once one major area or country starts to introduce these laws, they start rolling out everywhere. So it's of interest to people wherever they are in the world. Yeah, that's absolutely true there, uh, Steve. You know, and again, Jane came out with some excellent points there, gave some great examples and and certainly has an experience that, that, that you know, people can tap into and a knowledge that people can tap into when it comes to um, how biodiversity is not only very essential, but uh, beneficial and um, and where where we are going as a as an industry, I think is the best way to put it. And I think you, you, you like you hit the nail on the head there. You know, I often see it in within the industry. Once something is introduced in a certain area and is shown to be successful and necessary, it doesn't take long for those, you know, for other countries and 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 for for it to, to become an industry wide regulation or, or aspect. So you know, I think this is this is coming for every country. I know in the UK, it's obviously. Probably have to be expedited with the with the new uh, regulations that have been introduced, and I think again, it, you know, this information that Jane has given, and uh, she she is a wealth of knowledge, and and here in constructive voices, we're going to be hoping to uh, to to gain more of that knowledge by having Jane with us on a couple more of our, of our uh, information projects going forward, and we're going to be going in terms of our planning, our town planning, and um, how development is 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 going to have to come on board and, and, and where we need to change to make sure that, that we're, we're reaching the targets that we need to reach. As with all of these things, yes, there will be some extra stuff that needs to be considered, but also, and you are the one to speak about this, Pete, you are, you are the opportunity czar on this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure you can see opportunity in, in what's being talked about. I always see the opportunity in these, in these situations. Does that mean that, you know, Everybody has to stop and starts losing money. No, it doesn't. It means that we need to rethink, we need to reframe, and we need to come up with some new ideas and some new opportunities to both benefit in in terms of how we live, but also, you know, there's going to be opportunities there for people to economically benefit as well, you know. We're going to try and help people understand what uh, needs to be achieved and then how they can achieve it and how they can make sure that they're 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 their work is up to code and, and is meeting the regulations that are, are put in place because it is quite complex and um, it's 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 something new. And like anything that is new, you know, as much information as possible to, to help people transition and, and help people make the change in the right way is, is very, very important, you know. So as, as I do always say, when I hear things like this, exciting times ahead and, and I'm looking forward to uh, upskilling myself. I'm looking forward to learning about um, 
this this subject um, along with lots of other stuff that we've got coming up as well beautifully teed up Pete and if people want to find out more well you need to be obviously subscribing and following the podcast you need to be uh, going onto our website and our social media making sure you know when all this stuff is coming down the line because we will keep you updated and Pete I'll speak to you again in the next episode thank you Steve I'm going to go for a walk and visit some nature and listen to the birds and I can't wait to hear your beautiful voice on the next one (laughs) Cheers, Pete. Talk soon. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website where there's lots more information too. That's Constructive dash voices.com don't forget the dash until next time thanks for listening you're really helping us build something 